Thank you, Brother Joe, for leading us in prayer this evening. I'm grateful for your prayers for your church family. Um, and this is a great privilege we have to do that. I hope you do that daily. Judges chapter number 15. Let's head back to that chapter. We've been in it uh, for a little bit. We looked at the first eight verses last week, and tonight we're going to pick up at verse number nine. 200 years ago or so, a man named William Cooper wrote a hymn. Uh, he's an English hymn writer, and, and uh, he wrote a hymn, and part of that hymn says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That is a great hymn that reminds us that, uh, that when things are upside down, things uh, almost appear to be overwhelming, remember that God's above all of that. I love that last line that says he rides upon the storm. God is always working. Remember Andy Bonikowski's encouragement to us probably three years ago now. God is always working even when it seems like he's not. Uh, he is in control and he is the architect of circumstance. And that truth is played out in Samson's life time and time again. When we've been, as we've made our way through these chapters so far with Samson's life, there's one thing that, that we have noticed and I've mentioned it to you before. It's this, that Samson is a study in contradictions. He is a study in contradictions. Here is a young man who had so much going for him. And yet just always seemed to choose poorly. You remember that scene in that one Indiana Jones movie where they were supposed to pick out the right, uh, the right cup. Remember that? And, and they told the, uh, that guard that was standing there told Indiana Jones, you chose wisely. Samson never got accused of choosing wisely. He just made decision after decision that was just terrible decisions. A life of contradictions. He's a study in contradictions. I listed three of them. I don't remember if I left them on your worksheet or not. Chosen by God to deliver Israel even before he was born, and yet he lived his entire life for himself. He was to be separated to the Lord in holiness and purity, yet he always sought the embrace of ungodly women. He was to be a Nazarite, the scripture says, from the womb, yet he repeatedly violated those Nazarite vows. When it, came to, when it came to separation, Samson was sinful, he was selfish, and he was devoted and committed to himself. I wish I could finish that sentence and say he was devoted and committed to God, but he just wasn't. He was all about himself, and in spite of all that, and this is where God's grace comes into my life, not just Samson's. In spite of all that, God used Samson. In spite of his shortcomings, in spite of his self-centeredness, in spite of his sinfulness, God still used Samson. And I think that might be the greatest contradiction of them all, that even in our sinful state and our sinful nature sometimes, God still uses us. In spite of ourselves, that's the end of that sentence, in spite of ourselves, God can use us. Let's quickly review how we got to where we are in chapter 15 and verse number 10. You remember that Samson found a woman in the village of Timnath and he told his parents, get this woman to me for a bride. And so they worked out the dowry, they got everything set, they were having the marriage feast. At the marriage feast, Samson put a gamble on a riddle that he proposed to 30 Philistines. 
The wager was for 30 suits of clothes. Either each of those men had to give him a suit of clothes, or he, as an individual, had to give each of those 30 men suits of clothes. But either way, there were going to be 30 uh, suits of clothing changed hands. Well, they cheated. They pressured his wife. They won the bet. And you remember he went to get the 30 suits of clothes. He went and killed 30 other Philistines in a village quite a ways away, brought the clothes back, and paid off that debt. When uh, And he was so angry that this all happened that he left the, he left the wedding. Never consummated that marriage. When he came back to claim his wife, he'd found that his father-in-law had given his daughter away to another man. Well, that enraged him. So, remember, he tied, he tied 150 foxes by the tails. He tied them off in couples, put a burning, uh, a burning bush to them, and set them through the crops. The Bible said they burned on the crops, the orchards, and the vineyards. Well, that, um, that enraged the Philistines. So they went back and took that woman that should have been his wife and her father and burned them to death. Well, that enraged Samson. Remember this last week? We talked about how seeking vengeance, all it does is escalate if you're going to keep going back and forth. And all it did was escalate. They killed his wife and father-in-law. Samson, the Bible said, slew them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. I don't know how many that is, but that's a bunch of Philistines. He just slaughtered them. So this is going back and forth, and he goes off on this killing spree. So by the time you come to chapter 15, verses 9 through 17, we're going to read about this continuing escalation of hostilities between Samson and the Philistines. Except in this passage tonight, Samson's own people are going to turn on him. Not just the Philistines, but the Israelites. Samson was no saint. We're we're not going to paint him in that kind of picture at all. He was absolutely no saint. But he was surrounded by a group of people in the nation of Israel that were comfortable living in darkness and living in bondage. And they didn't want that apple cart upset. And so they're they're going to turn him in. Here they are rejecting the one person that God had sent to deliver them. Every once in a while, not, not very often, certainly not like the life of Joseph, but every once in a while, Samson shows up and you see, you see hints of what happened in the life of Christ. Here's one of them. God sent Samson to be a deliverer and the people are going to reject him. These Philistines come into, into Israel for the first time, the southern part of Israel, And there are three lessons that I want to point us to tonight and make some application from these verses. So let's start reading at verse number 9. We're stopping at verse number 17, and that'll be our focus. That'll be our focus for this evening. So Judges chapter 15 and verse number 9. Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why are you come up against us? And they answered, to bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. Just remember the end of that verse. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock Etam and said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, as they did unto me, 
so have I done unto them. Would you just compare the end of verse number 10 to the end of verse number 11? They are trapped in a vicious cycle of vengeance. Well, we're here to pay him back for what he did to us. And they ask Samson, what, what, did, what did you do? Hey, I've just done to them what they did to me. And they go back and forth. Verse 12 says, and they, these Jewish elders, they said unto him, we are come down to bind thee that we may deliver thee into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, swear unto me that ye will not fall upon me yourselves. And they spake unto him saying, no, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand. But surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. And Samson said, With the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called that place Ramoth Lehi. We'll stop right there. He's not done with that jawbone. You already know that because you're familiar with his story. Uh, we'll come back to it next week though. But there's Samson. And I'm, I'm entitling our message tonight, When the Enemy Comes In. And I'm saying that because it says in verse... Uh, number nine, that that the enemy has come into Judah and they've pitched their uh, tents there and they have spread themselves in Lehi when the enemy comes in. So what do we do when the enemy comes after us? I know we're at this place in the story because of Samson's unrighteousness and his his inability to control his temper. I know that. But the fact remains that the Philistines, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, are now in Judah. They have invaded Judah. So what do we do when they come in? That's what I'd like to look at tonight for our practical application. When the enemy comes, what do we do? So we'll have three, we'll have three different things that we look at. First, we're going to look at the Philistines. Then we're going to look at these men of Judah. And then we'll finally look at Samson. So let's start, number one, let's start with the Philistines and their attack. That's in verses 9 and 10. The Philistines and their attack. The Bible says they've come to Judah. And they've come here intentionally. They just didn't pick a random place. Uh, They've come here on purpose. In fact, let's make that our first point there under that, the purpose. They're here on purpose. This is the purpose. Verse number 9, the very first word uh, in verse number 9 is then. Then. After the preceding events. They began their attack after and in response to that killing spree that Samson went on. Remember, he slew them hip and thigh, the Bible says. A great slaughter. So they come, They uh, he flees to this place and they've come after him. What has changed here? What's changed is that Samson had been a local problem. His, his, um, his activities, let's call them activities, but his activities had been pretty much located in that area in and around a village called Timnath. 
But now all of a sudden that's changed. And the Philistines now as a nation have a problem on their hand. And that problem is one man who is capable of single-handedly slaughtering Philistines by the dozens, if not the hundreds. He's a problem. This is like having Rambo loose, and you don't know where he's at. You see, it was, it was just a problem. Those people over in Timnath, let them deal with that guy. He's crazy. But now all of a sudden, he's broke out, and he's slaughtered Philistines like crazy. So he's a national problem. So they set up this attack against Israel to remind Israel who's in charge, yes, but they've come to put Samson in his place. Why are you here, they asked him. They said, to bind Samson are we come. They've come here on purpose. He attacked them. So what is it now? It's payback. We have come to do to him what he has done to us. That's their purpose in coming. What's their plan? That's described there in verse number 9. It says a couple of things. First, it says they came and pitched in Judah, and then they spread themselves in Lehi. That phrase, spread themselves in Lehi, it gives the, it gives the uh, picture that they are spreading themselves throughout this particular region. They know he's here somewhere, and they're spreading themselves out in this campaign of terror, and they have come to, uh, they have come to not just to get Samson, but they're coming to remind Israel who's really the boss here. This whole region is being attacked, and their goal is to make Israel cower before them, which is exactly what happens, isn't it? Because it says in verse number 10, they come out and says, why are you come here? And when they go to Samson, they go to Samson and said, do you know who you're picking a fight with? Don't you know that they're, they rule over us, Samson? The Philistines had the intent to make the children of Israel afraid, and that's exactly what they did. They came and they spread out over this land. So their purpose, they're coming to get Samson. Maybe a a secondary purpose to just remind Israel we're in charge. Their plan is to come over and they've infiltrated this region and they've taken over in this process of spreading out. They've taken over region after region after region in this area called Lehi. And then the place. Verse number 8 says that Samson fled to this top, the top of the rock Etam. So we know where he's at. He's in the whole tribe of Judah, that tribe of Judah. He's in the region of Lehi, and specifically, he's on a hill that has come to be called Etam, one mile southwest of Bethlehem. And here they come, and they're determined to get him. They know exactly where he's at. Now let's take those three things, the purpose the plan, and the place. And let's make a practical application for you and I when we face our enemy. In this story, Samson is you and me. The Philistines picture the devil and his minions. They attack him. It shows how Satan and his forces attack us. The Philistines here, now this isn't true in every instance when it talks about the Philistines attacking Israel, but here they're they're attacking Israel. In retaliation. And may I tell you, Satan will do that to you and to me. Sometimes he may come at us for no reason. Sometimes he just may just, he may get his jollies like he did with Job. 
But there are other times when choices you make invite the attack of the devil. You make the right choice, you've opened the door for Satan's attack. Now, Samson here did some things and the Philistines are attacking in retaliation. When he, when he stepped out of his little area of Timnath and then he slaughtered a bunch of them, he encroached on the Philistines' territory. And when you and I as Christians or together as a church, we make a determination that we're going to, in advance of the kingdom of God, we're going to take this course of action or that course of action. And it encroaches on the devil's territory. He's not going to stand idly by and let that happen. You find a, you find a person that is living a life of sin. Do not, they don't know Christ. And they get saved and they start to, they start to make choices in their life that turns them off of the path of wickedness and it, they, they start living a life of righteousness. Satan's not going to let that go unaddressed. He's not going to do that. Satan made, or, or, or Samson made some choices here and Satan comes along and he attacks in retribution. Sometimes Satan, when he comes after you, He'll do it by way of distraction. Do you know Satan sometimes will put good things in your life to distract you from the, from the excellent things that are in your life? There are good things that will keep me from reading my Bible every morning. There are good activities that will hinder my prayer time with the Lord or make me shorten it. Sorry, Lord, I've only got 15 minutes. This thing's popped up, and it's it's a good thing. Satan uses good things to distract us from doing what's best. And when you choose to live for Christ, and when a church takes a choice to go in a certain direction for Christ, Satan's not going to stand by. He'll do his best to distract. I, I wrote down, let a church begin to grow, and the enemy will go to work. Disruption from within or attacks from without, his goal will be to undermine that work for Christ that the church collectively is trying to do. And the same proves true when it comes down to the individual Christian or the single family. Satan's going to oppose those things. Did you notice how the Philistines, the Bible says, it's, they spread themselves out. Satan spreads his influence and he will try to permeate as many areas of your life as he possibly can. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand and testify, but see if this is not true. How many of you, how many times in your life have you faced attacks from Satan on multiple fronts? Not just one area, but multiple areas. A problem with a family member. And then a financial issue shows up. And then a disgruntled brother or sister in Christ. Or a problem at the job. And all of these things. You know what Satan's doing? He is spreading himself out. And he's going to attack as much as he can. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 19 The second part of that verse says this, When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Note that first one, that first word. When the enemy shall come in like a flood. 
God doesn't say if as if, as, as if there's a potential to that happening. He's saying it's only a matter of time till Satan comes in and spreads himself out against you. When he comes in like a flood, stand there because the Spirit of the Lord is going to take up your defense. He's going to lift up a standard against him. These Philistines knew right where Samson was. They went right to the region. They went right to the mountain, and the devil works the same way. He's going to attack. When he's attacked, he will attack right back. One thing Satan isn't is a coward. If, you, if, if we decide we're going to stand against him, he will fight back. So let me give you an encouragement here, and then we'll move on. Our lives ought to be the kind of lives that Satan hates. Our church ought to be the type of church That Satan hates. But be aware. If he hates us, he'll attack us. If he hates you, he'll attack you. They came after Samson because they hated him. Satan ought to hate us because we serve the Lord without fear. He ought to hate us because we stand for the truth of the word of God. He ought to hate us, but if he does, he will attack us. Jesus talking to Simon Peter In Luke chapter 22 said, the Lord said to Simon, 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 behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. You remember that? But then he goes on, Simon, don't worry about it. I've prayed for you. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, then the spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against him. Live a life that Satan hates. Be a church that Satan hates. Then be ready for his attack. Well, how can we avoid Satan's attacks? Don't do anything. Don't do anything. Don't do anything for Christ. Don't stand for truth. Don't make decisions that cause a, a hardship in a relationship, perhaps. Just don't do anything for God at all. And you'll be fine. Satan won't come after you at all. But if you're going to oppose him, Be ready for him to oppose you. This is the Philistines and their attack. They came after Samson. They came on purpose. And it's a great, it's a great picture of how Satan will come after the Christian when we choose to do what's right. He's not going to ignore that attack. He's going to respond back. The Philistines and their attack. The second thing in verses 10 through 13 is Judah and their arrangement. Their arrangement, the deal they work out. First, in verse number 10, they express their concern. It says in verse 10, they go to the Philistines, why are ye come up against us? They express their concern here. These elders panic. And they ask the Philistines what's going on. And they find out it's because of Samson. we, We read through all of the story that we're going to tonight. So you know what's coming. You know their conversation with Samson, can I just point something out here about their concern? The concern of these leaders in Judah was not about being under Philistine bondage. That's not what bugged them. What bugged them was that someone was going to rock the boat. They were, I said a moment ago, Samson lived among a group of people who were comfortable being under bondage to the Philistines. And Samson's going to rock this boat. It's amazing to me that the one man who could deliver them from the Philistine oppression, the one guy 
They didn't know what he was up to, apparently. I think they were genuinely shocked. When these, when these Philistines all came to Judah, they come to him and they say, what, what, what are you doing here? They had no idea what the man that God had chosen to deliver him, they had no idea what he was up to. Their big concern was about placating the enemy. Their big concern was that nobody upset the Philistines. Yes, we're living like slaves. Yes, they tax us higher than they should. Yes, they steal our crops. But let's not rock this boat. Let's just make this work. They were comfortable living under the bondage of the Philistines. They were God's chosen people living in the promised land, but they didn't care that they weren't living victoriously. I want you to ask yourself this. Are you comfortable living in bondage? They were. Because they go to, they go to Samson, don't they? They go to Samson and say, quit rocking this boat. Don't you know who rules over us? In, in fact, look at their exact words. I don't want to misspeak here. They say in verse number 11, 3,000 of them go to Samson. Knowest thou not that the Philistine are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? They just accepted the fact that they were living in bondage. Let's not be like that. Let's not let this world or our sin have such a grip on us where we're content to live in a non-victorious life. They should have been thriving in the promised land. Instead, they're under bondage. That's their concern. Their concern is not, boy, Samson, we need you to help us out. Let's get rid of these Philistines. Their concern is, let's not rock the boat. We're comfortable living in the world we're in. Then not only they're concerned, they're compromised in verses 11 and 12. And the compromise is this. They gather 3,000 men and they go to Samson to take, him into com- to, to take him into custody. They confront him about him and his attacks. What are you doing? And he said, look, I'm just giving what I got. Whatever they gave me, I'm giving it right back. Would you notice that in their exchange, going back and forth between the leaders, the elders of Judah and Samson, would you notice this? That God is not mentioned one time. Everybody, listen carefully, everybody's focused on the Philistines and the world in which they live. Nobody is talking about God. It's all about me. It's about what I want to do. It's about my need. Well, they attacked me, so I attacked them. And the Philistines are over there saying, well, he attacked us, so we're attacking him. Nobody's talking about God. Samson was concerned with Samson. The elders are surrendered to the enemy and they're convinced that they will never be more than slaves to the Philistines. Let's not mess this up. Samson didn't want to fight his people, not the Israelites. So he says, look, promise me you're not going to kill me once you tie me up. I don't know if Samson knew about his great strength yet that was coming. He knew he defeated that lion. So maybe he had an idea But he said, once you tie me up, you're not going to kill me yourself, are you? And they promise him they're not going to do that. And so they put him, they they use, the Bible says, new cords, ropes that had never been used. These are going to be vines that are still green and, and they're strong. They're not brittle. They've not dried out in the sun. 
and they're going to be strong ropes. And so for the first time, this is my opinion here, for the first time, Samuel acts in wisdom. And he submits to these elders of Judah. He goes along with their plan. We're just going to tie you up and hand you over. That's all we're doing. We're not going to kill you. Had he resisted those men, there would have been bloodshed in Israel. He'd have had to kill his own people. I don't think they would have taken him. But he would have, he would have certainly fought back. And so here, here Samson is. He's tied up and he allows these men to take him to the Philistines, hands bound. And he's turned over to the Philistines. And hopefully, he's thinking, they're going to let their guard down, which is exactly what they do. So you have the, the concern of these men of Judah. What is it? Samson, you're going to mess up things for us. Their compromise is, we're going to turn you over to them, betrayed by his own people. And in verse 13, their choice. It says in verse 13, they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand. But surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. I won't stay here very long on this, but I want you to notice this. The men of Judah here chose bondage over liberty. They chose the status quo over the will of God. They chose the Philistines over Samson, the very one God had 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 led them to, to lead them out from under opposition or, or, or under uh, bondage here. And they chose to sacrifice one of their own. This is their choice, bondage over liberty. Christians and churches, be careful we don't do this. Be careful we don't choose bondage over liberty. A long time ago, there was a speaker of the house, and his name was Sam Rayburn, and he said this, If you want to get along, this is how he described politics in Washington. If you want to get along, go along. If you want to get along, go along. That's fine for politics. That's terrible for truth. You don't just go along with whatever is the flavor of the day when it comes to truth and righteousness. Churches and Christians have to stand for the truth whether or not someone's feelings get hurt, whether or not it upsets the apple cart. These men of Judah demonstrated this. They are handing over Samson. They are compromising by handing over one of their own to the Philistines for what they know is a death sentence. They know the Philistines are going to kill him, and yet they give him up. One historian said they are as guilty as if they had taken Samson's life themselves. They did not kill him, but they delivered him to be killed. And God's word teaches the accomplice is as guilty as the perpetrator. You remember Romans chapter number 1 and verse 32 says this, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Romans 1.32 says it's not just the perpetrator, it's the accomplice that God will hold accountable. God looks at these Jews and he's going to hold them accountable for this. So whether your cooperation in the enemy's attack is implicit or explicit, we're still guilty. Here's, here's an example. 
It doesn't matter if you're the one gossiping or not. If you're listening to that gossip, you're an accomplice. God will hold you accountable. See how that works? All of a sudden, now it got real practical, didn't it? Because you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not going to turn anybody over to the IRS in here. I just made the IRS the Philistines. Did you catch that? You're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to betray a brother or sister. Then let's bring it back down to where we do live in a matter as simple as gossip. The perpetrator shares guilt with the accomplice. God says we have to watch out for this. This is what Matthew Henry said. Justly is their misery prolonged who to oblige their worst enemies abuse their best friend. Justly is their misery prolonged who to oblige their worst enemies thus abuse their best friend. If you're going to turn over Samson like that, if your misery gets prolonged because you've turned over your friend, that's just absolutely fine. You know what? Israel stayed in bondage longer than they had to. They had their deliverer. And they gave him up. The Jews in the New Testament had their deliverer. They had their Messiah right there. And they crucified him. So the people who lived a long time ago are not much different than the people who lived in the New Testament. And the people who lived in the Old and New Testament, they're not, they're not much different than the people who live today. The gospel's being taken all over the world and people are turning it down, rejecting it. This was their compromise. So you have the Philistines and their attack, Judah and their arrangement. And the last thing is this, Samson and his accomplishment. Verses 14 through 17, uh, when, he's, when he's delivered to the Philistines, did you catch that in verse 14? When he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. This was a time of rejoicing for the Philistines. This is great. This guy who killed all of our friends, who, who uh, killed those 30 men to start, and then who burned all our crops, this guy who did all this, we've got him now. Look at him. He's tied up with two, not one new cord. One new cord would have held anybody. Two, there's no way he's getting out of this. And they are rejoicing over this. This, this capture of Samson was a matter of public rejoicing. They intended to kill him, and that brought him pleasure. Now, hold your finger here. Just, just keep that in mind. They, they, they intended to kill this man, and they were rejoicing over it. Can I just read you one passage of Scripture found in Proverbs chapter number 1 about people who have that kind of bloodlust? In Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall all fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path for their Feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Be careful about those that are they're looking for a way to launch an attack like that. The Philistines were rejoicing. They are celebrating because they are about to execute this guy. The Bible warns us to stay away from people like that. 
Now, you and I both know, we know the story, their excitement's going to be short-lived. Look, look first, and not only do you have, uh, not only do you have the Philistines rejoicing and all this going on, but look first at, at verse number 14. Look at Samson's power. Samson's power. I still think it's something that in spite of his failures, God continues to use him. The Bible says that the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And those those new cords, those strong ropes that were binding him, the Bible says, to put it into a, a context, it's like burnt thread. They became like burnt thread. Can you imagine how weak is thread anyway? Burn it and it just goes away. In fact, the Bible uses the word he was loosed from them. Do you see that word loosed? Our English word for that is liquefied. Those ropes became like liquid. That's like trying to tie somebody up with toothpaste. It's just not going to work out for you. It liquefied on him, and he's free. Samson's free. This is the same guy that killed all those people hip and thigh, brought a great slaughter. Do you remember that? Do you remember the old movie King Kong? When the, when the ape got loose in New York City. You remember that part of the, the show? When he got, everything was great in that show. They're sitting there and they're enjoying that show until he busted those chains. And that's how I picture the Philistines when Samson got loose. It was a huge uh-oh moment for them. These cords are gone. They became like liquid. And the Bible says the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And just like that, he was free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Is that a great Old Testament picture of that or not? The whole, the, this Bible says the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. The next thing you know, he's free. And he goes to work. There's, there's a good application for us right here. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and immediately his, his cords are gone. Here's the application for us. The secret to liberty for the Christian is to be controlled by God's spirit every moment of every day. That sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? To be free, you have to be controlled. The secret to liberty for the Christian is to be controlled by God's spirit every moment of every day. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 18. Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 18. Both talk about giving and surrendering our lives to the Holy Spirit. So first there's Samson's power. What's the secret to it? The spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. That's his power. The second thing is his performance in verse number 15. And he picks up that jawbone. The jawbone, the Bible says... It's a new jawbone of an ass. That means that donkey hadn't been dead very long. That sun had not sat out in the Palestinian sun and got hard and brittle. If you've ever dealt with bones that have been exposed to the elements for very long, you know they're easily crushed or broken. You, you, can, you can find an old deer bone or something out in the cow bone or something out in the field. You can bust those things pretty easily once they've sat out in the sun for two or three seasons. But you can't do that with a new one. You go grab some old cow's femur bone and try to break that thing over your leg, all you're going to do is give yourself a charley horse. That thing's not going to break. So the Bible's careful here to say that this is the new jawbone of an ass, and he, he, he picks it up and he goes to town. He, the Bible says he kills a thousand. That's what he was supposed to do. But can I, 
Can I just make a, a practical application here? We're getting close to the end of this. This jawbone was used wisely. But the truth is that there is any one of our jawbones can be a weapon. And a lot of times, our jawbones are not used in the right way. James chapter 3 and verse 6 says, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, setteth on fire the course of nature. It is set on fire of hell. And I know it's talking about our tongue, but your tongue works when your jaws are moving and my jaws are moving. And I want to encourage you that your jawbones, my jawbones, they can be used in the right way, but they can also be used in the wrong way. So let's be careful how we, let's be careful how we use it. Samson found this jawbone, I think, by God's provident design, and he picked it up and he used it to kill a thousand Philistines, a thousand of them. He used the jawbone that he had wisely. Use your jawbone, use my jawbone, use them wisely. I think I left that little poem on there by William Norris. Norris was a writer. He wrote essays and he wrote uh, short stories. He also wrote poems. And this little quip is a good one. If your lips would keep from slips, five things observe with care. To whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. That's good advice. I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but that's good advice. If your lips would keep from slips five things observed with care, to whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how and when and where. Control it. His power, the Holy Spirit came upon him. His performance, he used the tool that God gave him in the right way. And the last thing is his problem. Verses 16 and 17. After his victory, he composes a little poem of his own, doesn't he? In verse number 16, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass, I have, have I slain a thousand men. He's not a very good poet. I think poetry ought to rhyme. I don't do good with poetry. It doesn't rhyme in rhythm. That's poetry to me. Everything else is narrative or verse or something. He doesn't do a very good job on that poem, but he's bragging about what he does here. Heaps upon heaps, these bodies just piled up. And he names the place Ramoth-Lehi, literally that's the the hill of the jawbone. And he renames this place. And he's pleased with his victory, but here's his problem. He is untroubled by the fact that he has again defiled himself and broken his Nazarite law. He picked up. The jawbone of a dead animal. It's part of the carcass. Did you know in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 8, even the normal Jew was told not to touch the carcass of unclean animals. And the donkey's an unclean animal. Even the normal Jew is told not to touch the body of the unclean animals. Nazarites are told not to touch any dead body. And here he is again, breaking that Nazarite vow. This... This is the application for you and me. It's another reminder that God will accomplish his work even in spite of us. 
God is able to bless us with victory even when we fail to walk. If it's going to accomplish his will. And you say, well, I shouldn't care then whether or not I obey God's will. Oh, yes, you should because he'll, he may work through you and work things out anyway, but he's also going to chasten you and I when we step out of his will. The Bible says in Psalm 115 and verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. Samson did this against God's will, but God still used it to bring about the victory that God wanted. But he's always chastening Samson. Samson's always walking outside the will of God. There's another thing I want to mention before we, before we wrap up is this. Where do you think those 3,000 Jews went when Samson started fighting 1,000 Philistines? Where'd they go? I don't know what translation of the Bible you're reading tonight, but in the King James Bible, there's no lapse of time between them handing him over to the Philistines and him fighting 1,000 Philistines. 3,000 Jews were there, 3,001. My point is this, sometimes when you're going to do the work of God and you're going to go forward with what's right, you're going to do it by yourself. People may not stand with you. There's a, there, it's lonely sometimes to do the right thing. There's an issue going on with this church that my dad attended when my youngest sister was still in the high school department. And there was a problem in the high school department. And uh, my dad is a deacon, took that to uh, the pastor and uh, the pastor said, well, let's talk to the rest of the deacons about that because I think you're right about that. And then they got together with the deacons and the pastor and they dad started talking about these things. And, and he said, I just think that this focus that the youth department has, the high school class has in this, I, I think what we're doing is it's a misplaced focus when we're at church. And none of the other deacons agreed with it. And then the pastor didn't agree with it. And so there was my dad left standing by himself. Sometimes when you're going to do what's right, you're going to do so by yourself. That's what Samson does here. So if you decide to fight for the Lord, be ready to go it alone. Be ready to be the only voice for righteousness or for for truth. You might be abandoned by those you knew would stand with you. You knew they would have your back on that. But if it's right and if it's true... You're never going to really be alone because scripture says again and again and again, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is always going to be with us in this. I'm not a Dallas Cowboys fan, but back in the day, there was a guy named Roger Staubach that played quarterback for, for the Cowboys. He played 11 seasons for them. Five out of the 11 seasons, he took his team to the Super Bowl, and two of those five times, he won. I'm saying he's, he was a fairly good quarterback with numbers like that. But when Roger Staubach came to the Cowboys, he, was, he played under a coach by the name of Tom Landry. Landry didn't allow his quarterbacks to call plays. He called them. He sent them in. If it was going to be a run, Landry called it. If it was going to be a pass, it's because Tom Landry said that's what we're going to do. And, if, and, and, and the quarterback could change the play in case of emergency, but they knew it better be an emergency. 
If you don't, Landry's point was, you don't run the play I send in, there's going to be a problem. Roger Staubach said this about that. I faced up to the issue of obedience. Now, this is not, I, I don't know anything about his Christianity, and this is not in a Christian church context, but listen to what he said. I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. And if you look at Roger Staubach's numbers, there was victory after victory after victory after victory. The key is, once I learned to obey, if Judges 15 is about anything, it's about obedience. If it's about anything, it's about obedience. Samson failed to obey, and tragedy followed. Judah failed to obey, compromise followed. When we walk in obedience, we find what Stallback said, harmony, fulfillment, and victory. When we walk in disobedience, we're going to find God's chastening. And so when you read Judges chapter 15, ask, my, ask yourself, where does this find me? Are you standing for righteousness even if it means standing alone? Are you compromising like the Jewish elders because you don't want to rock the boat? Are you controlling how you use your jawbone? Whatever Whatever the application is, and there's a bunch of them in this chapter, walk away from Judges 15 thinking to yourself, if I just obey the Lord, there will be harmony, fulfillment, and victory. The key in in Judges chapter 15 is just obey God. Hymn number 349 in our hymn book. It is this simple in the Christian life. Trust and obey. That's The Christian life comes down to that. Trust and obey. Man, I wish Samson would have practiced that more often than he did. But let's, let's learn from him and learn to obey. Let's stand together, would you? Lord, thank you for this study.